All right, Jesse, I'm still super creeped out by Mr. Creeper John List. Where are we going this time around? A horrifying and brutal murder takes place in Jack the Ripper's backyard less than a year since his reign of terror. Has the Ripper returned? Or is the grisly double murder the result of obsessive love and indecent lust? Seeing as this is love murder, you can bet on the latter. I'm Andy Cassette. I'm Jesse Bray, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder. If this is your first time, welcome, welcome. This is a podcast where true crime meets human interest and where passion can create cause for all sorts of mayhem, even murder most foul. <laughs> it's a little remix. <laughs> I know. I've been really leaning into the intros lately. <laughs> Dramming it up. Dramming it up. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. So first of all, thank you, thank you so much to everyone who reached out to us on Instagram and Facebook and uh, <laughs> congratulated us on our expanding families and waistlines. <laughs> it wasn't just Thanksgiving. It wasn't just Thanksgiving. We have some turkeys in the oven. Um, so yeah, Andy posted a picture of us, not together, obviously, Sadly. but side by side. <laughs> and we had some really, really nice comments in DM. So thank you guys so much. It means so much to us that you sent your well wishes and also, I know some people were really concerned that it might affect the podcast, but I am solemnly promising you, we are going to get ahead of our content. We're going to get beside it. We're going to get behind it. We're going to get above it. It is happening. You do not have to worry we're gonna mount that about content. Love Murder. We're going to mount that content <laughs> just like we got mounted and it put us in this situation. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah I mean that's pretty much been the plan we were supposed to see each other and then we were gonna work really really hard for the remaining three months of our pregnancy but now we just have to work hard for you guys and we're gonna get it all out yep we're gonna get it all done so you won't even notice what's going on so it's all behind the scenes all gonna be taken care of all right today I have a treat for you Andy as requested months ago, I think that we were on episode eight when we had a case that took place in 1914, and you were like, oh, how cool would it be if we could do a case in the 1800s? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, I will find you a case in the 1800s, <laughs> m'lady. And I, I remember did. that. Uh-huh. So we are going back to eight. 1990 today. So trippy. Back to Victorian London for some diabolical murder. So crazy. So crazy. Are you ready for this? I'm not sure, but I mean, like, I don't really have a choice. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> so you better get ready. Here we go. Oh, crap. One more thing. 
One more thing. Sorry, guys. Before we launch into this story, I want to give a very special shout out to Amanda and Alina, who correctly called the John List episode last week based on my hints in the Thanksgiving bonus episode. So thank you so much, Amanda. I think Amanda also left us a review, which makes her my favorite person and the lover of the week. Sorry, guys, for the aside, we're going to get right back to Victorian London. All right. It was Friday, October 24th, 1890, just after 7 o'clock on a dreary night in London, when 19-year-old clerk Summerled McDonald took a shortcut through a construction site on his way home to Belsize Park. The area was poorly lit, terrifyingly secluded the gas lamps several hundred yards apart. The night was moonless, so especially dark, adding to the ominous feeling of the early evening. Summerled was in a hurry to get home to shed his work clothes and get back out to enjoy his Friday night, which I think we can all relate to. So much so that he completely ignored the crumpled form of a woman lying on the side of the desolate street at first. Probably just a drunkard sleeping off an early weekend tipple, he thought. But his conscience got the best of him, however, and he circled back to check on the woman. She did not appear to be breathing. Summerled flagged down a constable who examined the poor, unfortunate woman. No pulse. He lit a match by which to better see and drew back the jacket that had been covering her face. He recoiled in horror horror to find that the woman's face was drenched in blood and her throat had been cut from ear to ear. Ooh, it's like Black Dahlia style. Mm-hmm. A doctor summoned to the scene would ascertain, based on the still warm body, that the brutal murder had only happened a mere hour or two earlier. Onlookers were horrified and frightened, Whispers that the Ripper had struck again rippled out amongst the crowd and eventually to the reporters. Hoping to avoid more baseless speculation, an ambulance whisked the corpse away to be thoroughly examined at the police station. There, the brutality of the murder would be revealed. The woman's windpipe and spinal column had been divided, the gruesome wound nearly separating her head from her body. That's right. The murderer had nearly beheaded the woman in their efforts to slice her throat. She had also been hit so hard in the head that shards of her skull had splintered into her brain. Ew. Uh-huh. It's brutal. Her hands, knuckles, and body were terribly bloodied and bruised. She clearly put up a very, very good fight. The examining doctor suggested the injuries were consistent with the use of murder weapons such as a hatchet, hammer, and razor. Razor? Like to slit the throat. Oh, duh. Okay. Yeah. Like like not like a disposable (laughs) bick, (laughs) like one of those nasty straight razors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It'd take a lot of chops at the apple to get somebody throat cut with a venus. Oh, man. Detectives would later link the poor woman to a blood-soaked pram and much later to their deep horror, the dead body of an 18-month-old baby. Jessica, 
I'm sorry. I know you're having a baby. I mean, I guess I am too. But this book was free on Audible, so I had to jump on it. Also, speaking of the book, uh, the, <laughs> the source we're using for this episode is Woman at the Devil's Door by Sarah Beth Hopton. It is an extremely well-written book, very academic, actually. And I, like I said, I found it free on Audible. So if you guys have Audible subscriptions, I would jump on this. It's awesome to find free content. Okay, so we're back with the 18-month-old baby. Well, not because it's dead, right? No. Yeah, it's passed away. It's a bummer. We're going to discuss this at length, but also the description of the baby really sounds like my toddler, so that's also horrifying. (laughs) It's like, oh, God, it's brutal. We'll also put up pictures. There are some interesting pictures of this case, um, so check the Instagram, guys. Though the media and Londoners whispered of Jack the Ripper's return, the truth was slightly closer to home, repugnantly human, and in some regards, even more shocking to Victorian London than the brutal, possibly male serial killer. The sadistic slayer in this case would turn out to be a good-looking young woman motivated by the oldest cause in the book, obsessive love. Join us this week for Jacqueline the Ripper, the unbelievable tale of murderess Mary Percy. Whoa, that was a twist. Yeah. Also, I think everyone else calls a female version of Jack the Ripper Jill the Ripper, but I decided to put my own spin on it and call her Jacqueline the Ripper. I like Jacqueline more. So did Nathaniel. So we're all in agreement here. Surprise, so the- surprise. <laughs> surprise, surprise. We're all in agreement here, as we usually are. <laughs> so before the police would find all of this out, all they had was a woman's body. It was definitely not a Ripper killing. It had been just around a year since the last Ripper murder. The deceased in question didn't appear to be a lady of the night. And though the slit throat was indicative of a Ripper-style murder, many of the other wounds did not fall under the Ripper-style. Not to mention the area where the body was found was relatively, considering all things, far-ish from Whitechapel, which of course was the Ripper's hunting grounds. So the police were fairly certain from the beginning that this was a brand new perpetrator or maybe even a copycat killer. The first step in finding the killer was, of course, to identify the victim. So lacking any hard leads, the victim's description was telegraphed to all police stations in the district in hopes that someone had reported this woman missing. The woman was described as about 30 years old with dark hair and complexion, blue eyes, standing about five foot six. Uh, The initials PH were embroidered on her clothes and the manner of her undergarments suggested she had been nursing a child. Oh, that's so heartbreaking. Also, I don't even want to imagine what an old timey nursing bra was like. Um, So she was still nursing the 18 month old? Yeah. I mean, that's not surprising to me. No. I mean, still to this day, a lot of people do it until like two. And if you think about it, it's free. Yeah. Back then, it's (laughs) that like – Back then, it's free food, you know? About 30 minutes after the corpse had been discovered, a bloody pram was found about two and a half miles from the body dump site. Hairs from the pram seemed to match the victim. This fortified the theory that the victim was the mother of a small child or infant and, of course, 
sent alarm bells up to begin a search for the baby, whom the detectives desperately hoped would be found alive, as we all do. Meanwhile, the next morning, one Mr. Frank Hogg woke up alone at six in the morning. Frank was a 31-year-old furniture mover married to a Mrs. Phoebe Hogg, P.H., and father to a dear daughter, an 18-month-old baby nicknamed Tiggy, both of whom had been missing since the previous afternoon. And so Frank hadn't been immediately alarmed at his family's absence because Phoebe's father had been sick and his wife, Phoebe, had suggested earlier the day before that she might take the small child for a visit because he wasn't doing so well. Okay. However, by the next day at nine in the morning, which was on Saturday, October 25th, he hadn't yet received a telegram um, telling him that they had arrived safely, which she usually would have done so he now started to get concerned yeah so he sent his sister clara it sounds like he lived in a house with his sister and his mother like lived above him and his wife and his baby he sent his sister clara to visit a family friend named mrs percy to see if phoebe had been at her house or alerted her to her travel plans mary percy mary eleanor Percy. It's it's P E A R C E Y, like Percy. Percy but yeah. I think it's Percy. Should I say Percy? P E A R C Y. C E Y. Percy. I would say it's Percy. Percy. Okay. Then you sound like you have an accent too, so it's kind of like a two for Percy. one. Percy. <laughs> Percy. Mrs. Percy. <laughs> the Hogs had known Mrs. Percy for many years, and Clara particularly considered her a friend. Ever helpful in times of crisis. Earlier that year, in fact, Mrs. Percy had nursed her sister-in-law, Phoebe, back to health after what turned out to be a uterine ulcer. According to the hog's landlady, Phoebe had been dangerously ill, but after Mrs. Percy nursed her, she was better, and Phoebe was much attached to the woman she affectionately called by her family nickname, Nellie. It was only six minutes' walk to 2 Priory Street, where Mrs. Percy lived, and Clara arrived at her flat just after 9 o'clock in the morning. So at first, Mrs. Percy denied seeing Phoebe at all the day before. But when pressed by Clara, she admitted that Phoebe had actually stopped by the previous evening around 5 p.m. asking for some money and to mind baby Tiggy for a little while. Mrs. Percy had to decline as she didn't have much money in her purse and was running out the door. She hadn't immediately revealed the truth to Clara because Phoebe had wished to keep the borrowing money business private. Clara asked Mrs. Percy to aid her in her search, and the two women first went to the train station, where no one matching Phoebe or Tiggy's description had booked passage to Phoebe's parents' hometown. Then the two women returned to the hogs to wait for word from Frank. The landlady approached with a newspaper that screamed details of the horrible Hampstead murder from the headline about the Jane Doe that had been found there. Ugh, God. Yeah, so Clara, as she read, began to shake. The description of the murder victim suspiciously fit Phoebe's description. Could it be? Eager to eliminate the terrible prospect, Clara and Mrs. Percy set off to the Hampstead police station to inquire about the murdered woman. 
and an inspector Bannister met with the women at 11 o'clock in the morning and accompanied them to the morgue for the grim task of potentially making an identification. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, God. This is so grim. Like, obviously, we enjoy true crime, but I would not want to accidentally or otherwise have to identify a body. Oh, no. Especially someone who you, like, live with or love. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Horrifying. So before the sheet was even lifted from the victim's face, Clara recognized Phoebe's clothing. When the sheet was removed, both women were shocked by the devastated and disfigured face. Mrs. Percy became somewhat hysterical, denying repeatedly that it was Phoebe, but stoic Clara finally confirmed it was indeed the body of her sister-in-law. At that point, Mrs. Percy attempted to drag Clara from the room, but both Clara and Inspector Bannister yelled at her to stop and get a hold of herself, which is some Victorian shit right there. Get a hold of yourself, woman. <laughs> so she's having the Jacqueline the Ripper the woman, is having like a meltdown. Jacqueline the Ripper is is having like a meltdown about it. And I think she was originally trying to distract and say, like, oh, that's absolutely not her. Because if it's found to really be Phoebe, then she's obviously gonna be linked to the corpse. Yeah. If she can somehow convince Clara, who knows her sister-in-law, and the inspector that it's not Phoebe Hogg, then she's kind of hoping she'll get away with it, you know? Yeah. So she tried to, like, say, no, that's not her, and then, like, rip Clara out of there really fast. And Clara was like, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. I need to actually look at her, and she's wearing her clothes, and yes, this is absolutely her. What is your problem, basically? Yeah, psycho host beast. Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. So after that, Bannister took the women to another room to begin questioning them about Phoebe's last known movements and whereabouts, and the corpse was left to the autopsy doctor. During this time, Phoebe's niece, Lizzie Stiles, had also seen a newspaper, and she also came down to the police station to report her aunt missing. After learning that her aunt was in fact the murdered woman, as identified by Clara and Mrs. Percy, Lizzie said that Mrs. Percy was absolutely not to be trusted and the person she herself would most suspect in the brutal slaying. So her niece is like, yeah, that bitch right there. Mm, it's so crazy that she her. went down there with her. I know. I think maybe she thought she could control the scene or something. Yeah. There's so many cases of killers in uh, inserting themselves yeah. in the investigation. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good look, guys. Not a good look. It's not a good look. I mean, not that we want to, like, give any killer <laughs> advice, but it's not a good look. No. <laughs> so this statement of Lizzie Stiles paired with Mary Percy's bizarre behavior in the morgue and her own testimony that she was the last person to see Phoebe Hogg alive prompted Inspector Bannister to request a search of Mrs. Percy's home. So he didn't have to request any permission from the judge at this point in time. He just had to request permission politely from Mrs. Percy, <laughs> which oh is so God. funny. And she was like, sure, because it's Victorian England and everyone's very polite. She was like, yeah, I guess you can search my home. <laughs> Would you like but... any tea while you're there? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Would you like some tea and crumpets? 
So yeah, so she she said that's fine, um, but I insist on coming with you. So meanwhile, they're also questioning Frank, and they found out that Frank has a key to Mrs. Paracy's house. Do I do I smell an affair going on? Uh huh. So they're immediately there's a lot of skepticism about old Mrs. Paracy at this point. Which, by the way, I say old Mrs. Percy, but she's 24 years old. She just sounds like an old lady. <laughs> 24. <laughs> oh, my God. So immediately upon arrival, the inspector notices that two window panes in the kitchen are broken, resulting in shards of glass everywhere. Mrs. Percy claims that she had accidentally broken them while attempting to catch some mice. When the inspector raises the blinds in the kitchen to get a better look at the broken windows, light floods the small room and it reveals blood everywhere. Shut up. She did not do a good job cleaning it up. There was splashes and splatters and trails of blood on the ceiling, walls, and broken glass. Oh, no, honey. Mmm, babe. The hearth rug was saturated with paraffin, which is a chemical commonly used to remove heavy stains. When questioned about the blood, Mrs. Percy said, I do not enjoy very good health. On Thursday night when I came home, my nose bled violently. She's blaming it on a nosebleed and some dead mice. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. How vi- – that would have to be a Quentin Tarantino-esque nosebleed to get <laughs> splashes on the ceiling. I've literally never had a nosebleed where it shot out into the air and all over the room. No. It's – she – I mean, she made a mistake by letting them into her home, obviously. Oh, yeah. So, not a bloody likely, pun intended, Mrs. Percy. <laughs> <laughs> Upon a greater perusal of the home, Bannister uncovered a blood-stained fireplace poker, oh God. which could have certainly delivered the devastating blow to Phoebe's skull, a blood-stained carving knife, copies of love letters sent to Frank Hogg, and blood-soaked women's clothing. Oh my God. This is a treasure trove of evidence. So it had only been a matter of hours after Mrs. Percy and Clara Hogg had stepped through the police station's doors to identify the body that Inspector Bannister was able to make an arrest in her murder, collaring none other than the so-called family friend, Mary Eleanor Percy herself. After interviewing Mrs. Percy's neighbors, who all reported suspicious noises and comings and goings from Mrs. Percy during the afternoon and evening before, as well as an ongoing affair with Mr. Hogg, whom the neighbors had been incorrectly led to believe was Mrs. Percy's husband, Bannister felt comfortable making an arrest, clearly. The charges were the willful murder of Mrs. Phoebe Hogg and suspicion of the willful murder of the female child of Mrs. Hogg, little Tiggy. Mrs. Percy objected to the charges, clearly. (laughs) And Frank Hogg is just, he's good, he's like not in trouble at all right now yeah for some reason they're not after him they interviewed him but i don't i think he had an alibi for the time i'm guessing because they didn't really get into details about why he was cleared so quickly or they might have just been like hey we found this she's the one you know yeah but if they're having an affair i mean i agree with you 
So she said when she was arrested, you can arrest me if you like, she said somewhat dramatically. I'm quite willing to go with you, but I think you have made a great mistake. Mm. Despite Mrs. Percy's bravado, Bannister was quite confident he had not made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> the evidence in Mrs. Percy's kitchen all but proved that to him. Though he didn't yet know if she was the architect or the assistant, he was certain she was involved in the murder of Phoebe Hogg. A cab was called to ferry them all back to the police station. Undoubtedly, the police presence would have stirred neighborhood curiosity, and Mrs. Percy was probably walked from her flat to the cab in front of gaping neighbors who, if they weren't in the street to watch, peered from behind their curtains. Not a lot of entertainment back in the day. Mm -hmm. Gotta take it where you can get it. Yeah. Once inside the cab, Mrs. Percy asked, why do you charge me with this crime? On account of the evidence, Bannister said confidently. Well, she went on, I would not do such a dreadful thing. I would not hurt anyone. It must have indeed struck Bannister as somewhat unbelievable that this pretty woman who sat in front of him in the cab, as it bumped and shouldered against street traffic, was capable of doing to another person what the injuries Phoebe Hogg endured indicated were done to her. Yeah. Because it's crazy. I mean, the strength it would have taken to cut through a human vertebral column and then hoist 140 pounds of dead weight into a pram and then push that pram miles across uneven cobblestone streets. I mean, that would require somebody really, really, really strong. So this is something that like Bannister kind of doubted that Mrs. Percy had been even able to do by herself, even though later um, others would describe her as strikingly muscular. Okay. Bannister must have also wondered if the pram, which was not built to take the weight of a grown adult, could survive such a journey. As he studied her in the cab, the more logical deduction he must have arrived at was that Mrs. Piercy didn't act alone. So this is where, like, your suspicions, yep. they start to suspect old Frank. Old Frank. Old Frank. The hog. Who's also not that old. He's 31. <laughs> Just all these people seem a lot older than they are because it's 1890. I mean, I guess they are because, like, what was the life expectancy yeah. back then? It was, like, 45, I'm yeah. pretty sure still. <laughs> they're actually, like, 70. Yeah, they're, de they're middle-aged. They're more than middle-aged. Yeah, and actually, it's really funny. Inspector Bannister, who is, like, a, a tall, heavy-set -er man – would during the course of the investigation literally get in the pram and have one of his deputies like wheel him around for like an hour to see if the pram would break and if it would work and it worked it was an extremely well-made pram for babies and transporting grown people's bodies you apparently. know we always say that things aren't made the way they used to be <laughs> so true andy so true does anyone like to gift us an 1890s perambulator for our babies? We will be accepting donations. And we can use it till they're like 18. So apparently we can. <laughs> At the jail, a female constable ordered Mary Percy to change into workhouse clothing so her dress could be taken into evidence. When Mrs. Percy was asked to remove her gloves, she revealed hands that had been badly scratched and cut. We know what that means. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
By now, the media had become aware of the arrest in the Ripper-esque murder that had captured London's morbid attention, and the newspapers tended to agree with the police's suspicions. Mary Percy must have had an accomplice. And the most likely suspect would, of course, be the third point in the love triangle, Mary Percy's lover and Phoebe Hogg's husband. Maria, Frank's mother, Clara, Frank's sister, and Frank were all brought to the police station for extensive questioning. Also foremost on everyone's mind was, where is baby Tiggy? In custody, Mary Percy denied any involvement or knowledge of the child's disappearance. All of the major newspapers published descriptions of the child hoping to locate her. The baby's given name was Phoebe. She was named for her mother. And the description read as follows. Missing Phoebe Hogg, aged 18 months. Has very blue eyes and very little hair. Well, that is That's little Alden. <laughs> it is Alden. It's my daughter. She has no hair and very blue eyes. That description is like so unique. I know. It's kind of scary. It was like a dagger to my heart when I read it. I was like, oh, God. Also, the picture kind of looks like Alden when she was that age, too. We'll, I was going to say, we'll Alden's at least older already, so. Yeah, she's she's gotten – she's she's made it through the first murderous stage. <laughs> no one killed her at 18 months, guys, so I think we're good for at least until, like, 14 or something, right? No, I don't know. <laughs> God, this is terrible. <laughs> It also said that she had a small brown birthmark on one chin and that she was dressed in a cape, a plush bonnet, and a blue frock. The newspaper ink was barely dry on the description when a gruesome discovery was made. Oh, no. Yep. A hawker named Oliver Smith found the dead body of sweet little Tiggy at half past six in the morning on Sunday, October 26th. She was almost fully dressed, missing only one boot and sock. Tiggy was absolutely suspiciously spotless. Not a drop of blood or dirt anywhere on her body. Leading the police to believe she was probably smothered but it is also possible that she was just left out in the cold and died of the elements. Oh. Which is just too horrible to contemplate. I mean, they're both too horrible to contemplate, but like it makes me insane to think that a baby could be crying and no one would hear it. That's why I think the smothering is way more likely because in a place like – and I know it was found in like a, a, a off-the-beaten-path place but it's still London and there's still people all around this guy found the body at 6 30 in the morning you know yeah yeah I'm Ugh. sure it was smothered just to be done with because what if someone found it alive exactly yeah. yeah so I mean this sounds horrible to say but at least it was smothering it's over quickly you know yeah yeah, yeah. the elements is is way more uh unbearable intense yeah Ugh, for it just also just being a mom it's like Whoa, looks thinking about a baby just dying of cold, you know? Yeah. Terrible. So it appeared based on the lack of blood on the child's body and clothes that she'd either not been placed in the pram or had been originally wrapped in something waterproof because the pram was completely soaked through with blood. Phoebe Hogg's body, however, had most certainly been stuffed in the pram because it was her body that caused all of that blood. And they had also, at that point, matched the hair 
from Phoebe to those found in the pram. It also appeared, based on the shape and size of the wounds on Phoebe's head, that Mrs. Percy's fire poker had been the weapon to serve the crushing blows. Yikes. Investigators found 28 articles belonging to Mrs. Percy with blood on them. The police were mounting an overwhelming, if circumstantial, forensic case against her. So the inquest into Phoebe and Tiggy's murders began October 27th with Mrs. Percy as the main suspect. And I have to admit, I did not know what the inquest process was or really what a formal inquest was. This is our first UK-based case, so yay for that. And of course, so many of us, a lot of our listeners are in the US, so you might not be as familiar with the criminal justice system over there as I was not. And none of us, I think, are that familiar of what the hell was going on in 1890 Victorian (laughs) England. So what I found is that an inquest is a pretrial hearing officially held to determine the cause of a person's death. Generally, inquests are conducted only when deaths are sudden or mysterious or unexplained. And it can also mean an investigation or judicial inquiry. If the verdict is murder, most likely a criminal prosecution follows. So it it does interview the suspect on the stand, but they don't get to have a defense attorney. But also none of the, the findings are official. Like this, if it's found that they have reason to pursue a murder charge after this inquest, then it goes to an official trial and there they will be provided with a defense attorney. So that's the difference between an inquest and a trial. Okay. But it's it's in front of everybody and it's for the public. So in, in many other ways, it's very similar to a trial. So yeah, the inquest was completely mobbed by newspaper reporters and morbid spectators. Every single person extremely hungry for a glimpse of the supposedly beautiful murderess Mrs. Percy. Yeah, even when she wasn't testifying, eyes sought her out for the entirety of the inquest. I mean, people couldn't get enough of this. I think it's a little bit like when we have cases like Jodi Arias or Casey Anthony where they're like attractive women. It's like kind of boggles our minds that attractive women can do these heinous crimes, you know? Yeah. So this is from a woman at the devil's door, and this is Sarah Beth Hopton's description of what the newspapers at the time were saying about her appearance and her disposition at the inquest. A reporter for the Manchester Guardian wrote that she stood the gaze of a score of newspaper artists rather indifferently as they sketched her looking beggarly in police-issued clothes. She wore a very old dress and a shabby shawl, and many early illustrations of her portray her as gaunt and haggard. Even poorly dressed, she must have had her charms, and if not classic beauty, the assets of youth, smooth, fair skin, bright eyes, and lovely russet-colored hair. Most reporters described her as a fairly good-looking woman, tall and slim, though not skinny. She had thinly penciled eyebrows, which framed remarkable bright blue eyes, wrote one reporter. But her jaw receded slightly so that, when in repose, two misshapen teeth were just visible pressing upon her plump bottom lip. To some of the reporters who sketched her that day, she appeared nervous and fragile. But to others, she seemed unmoved by her terrible predicament. 
According to a female correspondent who later wrote a letter to the Lloyd's Weekly newspaper to set the record straight, these descriptions of her were inaccurate. Men, who were clearly incapable of the job, the correspondent complained, had let desire guide their pens. By her description, Mrs. Percy was five feet six inches tall, neither slight nor stout, with delicate coloring and small shapely hands, but not a single good feature in her face. Her eyes were dark and bright, but too small. Her mouth was large and badly formed owing to the set of crooked teeth, which were hidden by her lips, and she had a weak, receding chin. Despite this disagreement about her physical attributes, most reporters and commentators agreed that Mrs. Percy did not betray even a glimpse of the vicious character with which police endowed her. Indeed, there was nothing of the murderous in her appearance. But then, what? did a murderess look like it's interesting that there were so many different takes on her yeah and you know we'll we'll do a picture there's one photograph and then there's a lot of um court sketches yeah and she's definitely someone where you would be i think you'd be surprised that she's considered a great beauty but she's not unattractive she's just kind of in the middle it's one of those things where I, I, th- I think it's exactly like I was saying before. Like, she's not exactly a supermodel, but it's surprising, surprisingly good-looking given the circumstances of the crime, you know? Yeah, I also think, too, when you're, like, a court sketcher, it's hard to not have some of what you're hearing and thinking influence how you're drawing, you know? Absolutely, so yeah. She could, once they hear what she's done, she could look a lot more monstrous than she even is. <laughs> Maybe focus on those snaggle teeth a little bit more. (laughs) So Frank was first up as a witness and issued most of his testimony through such exaggerated sobs and crying that it actually provokes suspicion and not sympathy. Yeah, just like Mary when she identified the body. Mm -hmm. It was just so overly indulgent. Like it was like play acting his grief. So Frank was led through questions regarding his relationship with Mrs. Percy and his whereabouts during and after the murders. Other witnesses included Mrs. Percy's neighbors, Inspector Bannister, the coroner who had done the autopsies, Oliver Smith, the hawker who had found Tiggy, as well as Martha and Lizzie Stiles, the sister and niece to Phoebe. Both Martha and Lizzie reported that although Frank and Mary Percy attempted to play off this relationship as Mrs. Percy being a close family friend, Phoebe had, in fact, been deeply suspicious of Mrs. Percy's relationship with her husband and didn't really care for her at all. Hmm. Yeah, which is not what Frank's family thought. Frank's family and landlord thought they were all very close friends. Okay. They also called two other dalliances of Mrs. Percy's to the stand. A man named Charles Crichton, who appeared to have some sort of financial relationship with Mrs. Percy, like a little sugar baby situation, and her supposed ex-husband, a Mr. John Percy, who revealed that Mrs. Percy was neither truly a Mrs. or a Percy at all because the two had never been legally married. What? Yep. So you can imagine what a judgy Victorian court thought of all of that. Yeah. They weren't psyched on it. I'll just tell you that much. A non-married sugar baby? Yeah. So apparently they had been like 
common law or something, but it sounds like they only lived together for three years, so I don't know what common law statutes are, but at some point she had just adopted his last name, but they had never been married. Hmm. At the conclusion of the many witnesses, the jury consulted for one single solitary minute <laughs> before delivering a verdict of willful murder against Mrs. Percy. So oh. they must have just like looked at each other and they're like, she did it, right? Yep. Okay, good. Yep. We've decided she did it. <laughs> that has minute. to be the shortest jury ruling. It's crazy. And I mean, I think it makes sense because they know it's going to go to a trial yeah. where she'll be really held. So all they, they have to just say, is this worth going to trial? And they were all like, oh, hells yeah, it yeah. is. You yeah. know? Especially after all those witnesses too. Yes, exactly. It was it was long. I mean, it was it wasn't as long as a trial, but because there was no defense portion. Yeah. Um, but it was like a long process. So they were like, "Yeah, string her up. Let's do this thing. String her up. Get her, get her fine ass up on that stand, and let's punish her Victorian style. Start throwing rocks at her. Yeah." Mary Eleanor Wheeler, a.k.a. Mrs. Percy's trial was set for November 24th, 1890. So while she is awaiting her fate, why don't we go back in time and learn a little bit more about our Victorian murderess? What do you say? Oh, I'd say that's a great idea. <laughs> that's a great idea. Let's get some backstory on this boo. Mary Eleanor Wheeler was born in Kent on March 26th, 1866 to a low-ranking sailor father and a depressive epileptic mother named Charlotte. The family was poor, living in a series of tenements, and both Charlotte and Nellie, as the family nicknamed Mary Eleanor, suffered from fits and seizures. Huh. So medical records, the only medical records that Sarah Hopton could find make it very unclear whether Charlotte's fits were lifelong, but Nellie's fits, Mrs. Percy, seem to have been caused or triggered after an incident where she fell out of a nanny's arms and struck her head on some stones. Uh. So basically, the nanny just dropped her head first on a, like, in a garden, like a patio, and she fell on the stone patio head first. And, and it started and she, then? It started then. She was only two years old. So the event and subsequent head pains and seizures would haunt her for the rest of her life. You know who else suffered acute head injuries as children? Who? Oh, just some guys named Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, David Berkowitz, a.k.a. Son of Sam, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, John Wayne Gacy, Ed Gein, and Albert Fish, just to name a few. There's joking. a definite, yeah. no, there's a definite link between head trauma and violent tendencies. And all of them were at a young age as well. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Guys, I'm telling you, get helmets for your kids. Yeah, it's no joke. No joke. You don't want them to grow up to be serial killers. No. Although, if they have to wear a helmet all the time, they might be made fun of so much, then they also grow up to be serial killers. That's yeah, a fine line. It is where you're fucked every – anyway, this is what being a parent is. You just can't win. Yeah, just fake it and then keep faking it and then keep, keep faking, faking it. it. Just raise them with love and kindness and pray that they don't become terrible murder machines. <laughs> it's the only thing we can hope. 
So a few weeks after the incident, Nellie began touching her head insistently, like where the fall had happened. Yep. And crying all of the time. Like even later in life, she would describe like the she said that she still had a soft spot at that part Ew, even of her head. Because that too, yeah. their head's then developing it, aren't they? Pretty much. I mean, Alden has a really hard noggin. But she, I mean, I don't know if it caved part of it in or something, but she always described it. And John Percy, her, like, common-law husband, described touching it once because she asked him to. And it, like, causing a seizure right away when he put his hand on it. And it felt a little soft. Oh. Yeah. So. That's nasty. And this is a description from the book. When she was old enough to speak, she complained that her head hurt all of the time. Perhaps it was the intensity of this brain on fire that once caused Nellie to try and drown herself in the River Leah when she was only a child. She was rescued, according to a reporter from Lloyd's, by a nearby resident who heard the splash. Whether Nellie actually attempted suicide or just threatened it is unclear from the account. It is equally unclear the kind of seizures Nellie suffered or the type of epilepsy she had. In the 1860s, medicine had not yet advanced to a point where it could prove scarring of the brain resulted in headaches, temperament changes, and seizures, or what would be called today temporal lobe epilepsy. In cases of temporal lobe epilepsy, the cells in or around a lesion formed on the brain are so damaged they don't behave as healthy cells might. The brain misfires, shooting off bursts of electricity that can cause excruciating headaches and various types of seizures. Some seizures cause the person to fall down and convulse, but others are subtler and simply cause the person to act strangely or to appear to stare into the distance. Lesions have numerous causes, but are most commonly the result of head trauma as when a toddler is dropped headfirst on a hard surface. That'll do it. The nanny dropping a baby too. I mean, that's just like, that gives me heebie-jeebies. Yeah, Yeah, be careful who you entrust your children with, right? Uh, I read this part to Nathaniel. He said, like, that is my worst fear. He's like, every time I'm carrying Alden, he's like, my worst fear is like tripping and dropping her. Yeah. Oh, God. It's just, it's terrible. Poor thing didn't have a shot, you know? Yeah. It also certainly didn't help Nellie that in the mid and late 19th century, Victorians equated epilepsy with a kind of moral insanity. So some people during this era, like even medical doctors, went so far as to tie the inability to maintain control over one's faculties with propensity for criminal behavior. So they basically like would publish pieces on being like, if you have seizures, you're more likely prone to be a criminal. There was probably so little known about seizures Mm -hmm. and uncontrollable fits and everything that I could see them being, you know, just uninformed and scared about it. I think that it just goes with the Victorian sensibility, which is of complete control and like anal retentiveness at all times. Yeah. So the fact that there was a medical reason that somebody wouldn't be able to be in control of themselves like, was just so off-putting, the exactly. idea to them. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Mary Eleanor was described as having a kind and sweet disposition, but she never grew out of the debilitating headaches and fits she suffered, 
which led to constant acute anxiety that she would be struck by a fit in public, Yeah, which makes so much sense. I'd be filled with anxiety if I didn't know when in public one of these fits was going to start and people would look at me like a criminal. And I doubt they knew how to treat it. No. So it was, it's just a horrifying thought, you know? Yeah. When Nellie was a teenager, her father died in an accident at work. In her grief, she attempted suicide by hanging and was already described as black in the face when a neighbor discovered her and cut her down and she only barely survived. Oh, my God. Which I'm sure the lack of oxygen to her brain did not improve. Yeah, didn't improve situations there. Yep. Oh, man. So after her father's death, the family took in borders and washed laundry to make ends meet. So the details are kind of fuzzy about this part, and there's definitely no official marriage license to back this up. But her mother claimed when Nellie was 16, she ran off to marry a 23-year-old boarder who had been staying at their house and disappeared from the family for a full year with no contact. Huh. Her mother, Charlotte, said later, I always looked upon that as the cause of my daughter's downfall. So after a year of absolutely no contact, she returns with no mention of the husband, like didn't talk about what happened with them or what happened to him. But she said at that point she was going to Australia with a friend and she like, took whatever was left in the house, which wasn't much, and was like, bye again, essentially. And so sometime after she left, she had told her mother what ship she was sailing to Australia on. Okay. And Charlotte read an announcement that the ship was lost mid-ocean and all passengers drowned. So she said, we then mourned for her loss and expected to hear no more of her. And that was the reason we made no more inquiries, she later told a reporter. So it must have seemed miraculous when five years after Mary presumably drowned at sea, she arrived at Charlotte's door resurrected. So she was gone for a year. Then she hops Uh, back home at like, I get, you know, at... 17 at this point and she's like i'm going to australia on this ship they hear that the the ship sank then five years go by and so now she's like 21 i guess and she's just like never mind i wasn't in australia so if charlotte's account of the story (laughs) is true her daughter came among them again on easter sunday 1889. So I guess she has to be around 22 or 23 at least at this point because the the murders are the next year. Yeah. So Mary apparently came inside the house and kissed her brothers, sisters, and cousins affectionately as if nothing at all were strange about her sudden appearance or her complete absence over the past five years. She then sat down to regale them with the most unbelievable story. She had changed her mind about Australia at the last minute – A good thing, too, considering the ship sank. And instead, she had accepted a different man's proposal and was taken on to the continent. She'd been to Norway, Mary said, and all the chief places of Europe. When she returned to London, having enjoyed herself in Norway, she married a Mr. Charles Percy, and they now live together at 2 Priory Street. So there are no travel records to support this at all in any way possible. Um, And it seemed 
like this was a pattern of Mary's, she would try to make up lies to either impress people or to make herself appear more respectable than her situation actually was. Okay. But she was just a liar. She's yeah. a liar. Yeah. Um, and it's also interesting because she never married the real Mr. Percy, whose name was actually John. So it seems like it might have been likely that she just got creative about two of her lovers and named this imaginary husband Charles Percy because her other lover was Charles Crichton. Oh, my God. Yeah. Also, by the time she went back to her mom's house, she was already separated from John Percy. So it seems like really weird she lied about this altogether or even showed up when she did. So going back to John Percy, who is like the next big witness in her life. So we we really don't know what happened to her at all from about 16 to 18 or 19 because John Percy said that he met Mary Eleanor when she was roughly 18 or 19 near Fleet Street. So she was definitely still in London. He did not know what she had been up to for those couple years, though. He was, by all accounts, a very handsome young man who made a modest living as a carpenter. The two had lived together for three years, and John was plagued by Mary's madness and infidelities. In court and to the newspapers, he would describe several situations in which he would have to force her to drink salt water to induce vomiting after she consumed poison during fights. Oh my God, psycho. Psycho. She would just like right in front of him if he was arguing with her, find like rat poison and start chugging it to the point where he would then have to like find some salt water and get her to like drink all of it till she puked because he was like wanted to save her, you know? Psycho. Remember Charlene from Sex Slave Murders drank like a bunch of pine salt in front of uh-huh. an ex-boyfriend? Yeah. But that was like more – that was like drug-inducing, That was right? because she was on LSD and yeah. acid or something. Yeah. Or angel dust and acid, I think. Oh. Woof, bad combination. I mean, anything with pine salt is a bad combo. <laughs> it's not one of those things that you're like – you think you have to like really lock up when you're doing drugs. Like, don't – Lock up the pine salt. I might consume it. You oh, know? my God. So her seizures increased in severity, and they would often result in her having these wild flights of destruction and violence when she was living with John. Like, think crazy laughing or crying and then completely destroying the house or performing self-harm, like drinking the poison or hurting herself, like bashing her head against things or cutting herself. And then she would come to and not remember anything. She wouldn't remember hurting herself. She wouldn't remember what she said to him. She wouldn't remember doing any of this. Despite her illness and odd behavior, John stuck with her for that long. However, when he discovered she had been stepping out with not one but two other men, he just was like, I'm I'm out. Like, I have stuck by you through this, but now you're cheating on me with two dudes. Like, I'm out of here, dude. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. So the two other men in her life were the aforementioned Charles Crichton and, of course, Frank Hogg. It seemed that Charles paid her enough money that she was able to keep her residence at two priory. So that was her income, uh, essentially, was from him. 
Um, and in return for, you know, keeping her in house and in food and whatnot, they had a standing Monday night visit when he called upon her, as well as an occasional, I think, other visit that happened like every other week. Okay. Charles never admitted to having any sort of relationship like this. Even in his deposition, he denied that they had a sexual relationship. She, for her part, told uh, told her neighbors that he was her brother or her friend. Okay. But she did tell people that Frank was her husband. So, I mean, it. I guess it's possible he just was a kind benefactor, but that seems extremely unlikely that he was just Giving sponsoring her, money. her lifestyle for no return and they were just having pleasant conversation on these Monday nights. Yeah, no. Don't think so. Charles noped out of the media conversation as soon as humanly possible in this case. And other than to court officials that he was forced to talk to, never talked to the newspapers, tried to like disappear from this case. I don't know if he was actually married or not. It didn't say in the book. Um, But yeah, he was like, I would like to remove myself from this narrative. And he also, from the moment um, Mary was arrested or even, you know, jailed for the inquest he never spoke to her again he was can like you I'm do out that? Of can you like not testify and opt out if you're no entangled? i mean he no he testified and he was in okay. a deposition he just like john and a lot of the people involved in the story spoke to news reporters got it okay and he didn't so yeah. otherwise when he was like legally compelled to two officials he did not participate in this spectacle got it Meanwhile, the entire murder motive hinged on Nellie's relationship with Frank. So let's talk about Frank. Frank was rather unflatteringly described as a petulant, lazy man who was not, quote, strongly motivated to work and often reacted melodramatically when things didn't go his way. Sounds like a real peach. Oh, my God. He must have had some charms, though, because he managed to woo both Mary Eleanor and Phoebe at the same time. The affair continued well after Frank married Phoebe due to an accidental pregnancy. About this turn of events, Sarah Beth Hopton wrote, In late September or early October 1888, Frank went to visit his lover at 2 Priory Street. He was distraught and anxious and confessed that he had made a terrible mistake. He had accidentally got Phoebe, his fiancée of two years, pregnant. (laughs) Accidental. Uh Uh-huh. And would have to marry her soon, implying that he might not have married her otherwise. Melodramatically, Frank told Mary that as he saw it, he had but three choices. He could flee the country, kill himself, or relent and marry a woman he didn't love. Okay, if you didn't love her... And you were engaged to you her. You shouldn't for two have been years. fucking have, her then. Yeah, you could have broken up a long time before this. Oh my buddy. god, what a pity party! He's an asshole. Mary was ready to accept a marriage, but distant move or suicide was unthinkable. Also, I'm going to read to you two letters she wrote to him. They illustrate what a manipulative piece of shit this guy is. Like, while I'm reading you these letters, just let's keep in mind that this is him. Coming to her saying, I got my other girlfriend pregnant and he's making this a pity party for him. Yeah, that's so gross. 
so gross. In a letter dated October 2nd, she wrote, My dear F, do not think of going away, for my heart will break if you do. Don't go, dear. I won't ask you too much, only to see you for five minutes when you can get away. But if you go quite away, how do you think I can live? (laughs) I will see you quite away. (laughs) I would see you married 50 times over. Yes, I could bear that far better than parting with you forever. And that is what it would be if you went out of England. My dear loving F, you were so downhearted today that your words gave me so much pain. For I have only one true friend I can trust to, and that is yourself. Don't take that away from me. What good would your friendship be then with you so far away? No, no, you must not go. My heart throbs with pain only thinking about it. What would it be if you went? I should die. And if you love me as you say you do, you will stay. From your loving M.E. P.S. I hope you got home quite safe and things are all right and you are well. So he basically made this so bad for himself that she's worried about him now. Of course, yeah. And then on further visits, only a few days before his wedding, he again visited her and told her that he was thinking about suicide again. So she wrote him back on November 18th and wrote, Dearest Frank, I cannot sleep, so I'm going to write you a long letter. When you read this, I hope your head will be much better, dear. I can't bear to see you like you were this evening. Try not to give way. Try to be brave, dear, for things will come right in the end. I know things look dark now, but it is always the darkest before the dawn. Man, people were saying this shit way back then, huh? You said this evening, I don't know what I ask, but I do know. Why should you want to take your life because you want to have everything your own way? So you think you will take that which you cannot give. You will not if you love me as you say you do. Oh, Frank, I should not like to think I was the cause of your troubles. Yeah, he's blaming her yep. for this. Yep. Not and his dick. And make me think so. Yeah. <laughs> not his dick and his poor decisions. <laughs> what can I do I love you with all of my heart and I will love her because she will belong to you okay that's getting weird yeah yes I will come and see you both if you wish it so dear try and be strong as strong as me for a man should be stronger than a woman shall I see you on Wednesday about two o'clock try and get away too on Friday so believe me that I remain your most loving M.E. Three days after Mary sent this letter, Frank married Phoebe Stiles, who was three months pregnant at the time, in a small ceremony at his parish church on November 21st, 1888. Their child, Phoebe, was born May 1889 and baptized on July 7th. So it appears after the wedding and birth of Tiggy, Mary Percy inserted herself in the hog's life as a family friend. This was something that was at the manipulation and machinations of Frank Hogg, but in court, he just lied and was like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how they became friends. Like, obviously, Mary was visiting my wife while I was at work, and I had no idea this was even going on. Ew. Uh Uh-huh. So he's just trying to distance himself as much as possible. What a piece of shit. Yep, and so there was also a funeral for the family after uh, between the inquest and the trial for Phoebe and Tiggy, and at that point he was so separated from everyone he didn't invite her sister and niece to the funeral. 
What? And directly after the funeral, he moved away to get out of London. Um, and I think he came back for the trial and for some other stuff. But, like, he basically, like, he was very suspicious. He completely took himself out of town. He stopped every contact with her, with Phoebe's family, the victim's family. Like, it was real shady. Please tell me they're going to get this guy. I, I'm not telling you anything. I'm not spoiling. Like, you look so skeptical. So annoying. Your face, your face right now is like Fred Savage's in The Princess Bride at the beginning when he doesn't trust the grandfather. Because <laughs> it's so cute, but that's so how, skeptical. That's how I feel right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also this is this was total bullshit because there were plenty of witnesses who saw all three of them together, including Frank's own mother and sister who would be inclined to, you know, defend him. And they were like, no, we saw all three of them together all of the time. Mary was over at their house. Like, there's no way he didn't know that they were friendly. Yeah. Yep, yep. The public was with you, Andy. They were outraged at Frank's audacity to not only have an affair, but to insert his mistress into his family life. Yeah, that's which so fucking weird. So rude and, like, rubbing it in Phoebe's face, even though she doesn't know it. It's just abhorrent and disrespectful yeah sarah beth hopton said it well when she wrote had he not forced a relationship to develop between his wife and lover his wife and child might have lived yep frank may not have been the devil but he led phoebe and tiggy to the devil's door in early 1890, Phoebe fell ill and Mary Percy became her nursemaid. So there was some, this is what they talked about. We talked about in the beginning a little bit mm -hmm. where the landlady said that she was a very good friend and she came and she nursed Phoebe back to health. Yeah. There was some suspicion at this point that Mary and or Frank were poisoning Phoebe during this time. Ugh. So that's totally possible because a lot of her ailments really seemed like it could be the cause of poisoning and there was lots of different poisons available in Victorian London, you know? Well, and obviously Mary was familiar with using poison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there wasn't the medical technology to really trace that in people's yeah. systems. Yeah. So it had been very easy to get away with, but she did seem to improve. So they obviously bailed on that plan. And it's also possible that she was suffering from a uterine abscess because that was confirmed by the autopsy. When okay. they did do the autopsy, they found that she had a rather large uterine abscess, which also could have just been the cause of the whole – all of her symptoms too. Okay. So it's not clear. It might, it might be just a wild imagination because they did kill her later, you know? During the spring and summer before the murders, Phoebe confided in her niece that she no longer trusted Mrs. Percy. Though she didn't go as far to suggest there was an affair going on, she did believe that Mrs. Percy's intentions towards her husband were less than pure. Mm -hmm. Women's instinct, man. Don't yeah. go against it. Frank and Phoebe were fighting a lot while she recovered, and they even briefly separated. Frank claimed that he believed Phoebe was having an affair. We know All what that this we call trick that. In the book. All this trick <laughs> in the book. Also, that's like such a short time. Like they got married in 89 
and then they she got, got married sick. in 88 okay then she got sick in the like early early spring of 1890 but also when did she have the in baby 1889 so she had the baby in 88 so. as well right? yep so she had the baby hold on let me look it up exactly that's that's crazy that's like so much going on in, in a year so much okay so they got married in november 1888 the baby was born in may of 1889 yeah. and then she got sick i think in like february march of 1890 oh and then murdered in october and murdered in october yeah man that's that's a lot that is and also not fun poor phoebe i, I mean she had a rough go of it, especially the last couple of years, plus the uterine ulcer. Yeah, and her friend and nursemaid killing her. Oh, exactly. Oof. Classic projection. <laughs> textbook. And the reason textbook projection over here, he's saying she's having an affair. He said the reason he thought this was because she had become secretive over letters that she was writing and received, which is I think the 1890s version of being weird with your phone. Texting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, why won't you let me see those those letters you're writing? <laughs> also, poor woman has like a, to- a toddler and a baby. A baby. Yeah. And, uh, and, isu- and health issues. Like she's not having an affair. And if she is looking she for She was probably also support. just writing to her sister or her niece being like, my husband sucks and I think he's sleeping with my friend. That's probably why she didn't want to show him the letters, you know? <laughs> you can't so, delete them. You can't you can't delete those letters. Oh, you know what a delete is? It's throwing it in the fire. <laughs> oh my god. That's deleting from the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> So somehow they reconciled after a brief separation. Phoebe's health improved and relatives believed that the marriage was on the mend. This didn't prevent Frank from taking his mistress with him on a work trip, however. Oh, my God. Only 16 days before the murders, Frank took Mary Percy with him as he moved a widow's belongings from Hampstead to Bedfordshire, about 41 miles away. All who encountered the couple during this jaunt were led to believe that the two were married. Mary oh, even telling mm-hmm. Mary even told one woman that they had been husband and wife for five years. She's out of her mind. Oh my God. It seems possible that on this trip, Mary decided she could no longer live with only bits and pieces of Frank and decided to dispatch of his other dependents because the murders were less than a week away when the adulterous pair returned. Yeah. It's also possible, if we believe Frank was involved, that this could have been a murder planning trip where they came up with the idea and they decided how they were going to do it. Yeah. So the trial begins in late November of 1890, and the prosecution lays out exactly what they believe happened that dark day with corroborating witnesses and as forensic evidence as evidence could be back in 1890. (laughs) Meanwhile, Mary continues to deny she murdered anyone, nor that she had any knowledge of the murders. Her lawyer tried to get her to accept 
two credible defenses. So this was these were the two avenues he wanted to do. Um, his name was Freak Palmer. And she said no to both of them. So these aren't the de- defenses they went with in court. This is just his ideas. Okay. So the first one was that Frank did it and she helped him cover it up, which is totally conceivable. Given also that think about like 99% of our stories are about when an affair partner kills the spouse, the other spouse is always involved. Always. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Come on. So perhaps out of loyalty to Frank, she refused to implicate him whatsoever, would not go down that path. The second was that given her history of epileptic fits and violent outbursts that she couldn't remember, as well as the overwhelming physical evidence they found in her home, they could go with a temporary insanity defense yeah. saying that because of her illness, she was she had no idea what she was doing during the murder or even the cover-up because she had, you know, her ex said there would be hours occasionally she would be totally out of it. You know, it's possible she could have done all of the evil doing and come to later, you know? Crazy. So crazy. So they would have even had witnesses to testify that these episodes were not uncommon with her. And she refused also to go that way. She said it was because she could not in good conscience say that she committed a crime that she felt she didn't commit. Okay. But I also think that it's, again, we're back in Victorian London and maybe she didn't want to admit that she was mentally ill or that she was sick or that that it was possible she had done these things, you know? So she actually thinks she did not kill her. She seemed to really believe that she didn't kill her and she told her attorneys I'm not going to say that I did it and I'm not going to help you say that I did it so they were like completely shit out of luck because now her only defense is I didn't do it yeah and like (laughs) and she's not blaming the dude and she's not blaming Frank so they're trying to come up with like anything credible (laughs) other suspects which they did like in their closing arguments one of her attorneys kind of said guys come on like we can all admit it's probably Frank but she wouldn't testify to that. Like, she wouldn't aid in her own defense for that. So yeah. they could say it, but it's not going to have as much meaning wow. if she's not yeah. Yeah, testifying. Wow. She's really yes. not helping them at all. She's not helping them or herself even no. a little bit. So this is what the prosecution believed happened. Around 11 in the morning, Mary sent a neighbor to share a message with Phoebe. So this is confirmed from the neighbor's son, who was paid a shilling for his troubles. He didn't read the note. He has no idea what it says, but he definitively uh, delivered it to Phoebe Hawk. The note itself was never found, but it was believed to be an invitation for tea or some other reason to compel Phoebe and Tiggy to come to Mary Percy's house. Okay. So there were some questions regarding why Phoebe would accept the invitation when she was suspicious of Mary, but it seems she absolutely willingly made the trip because there was many witnesses that saw her on her way with Tiggy from her house to Mary Percy's uh, around, Shit. I think it was like around 5 p.m. <laughs> yeah, 4 or 5. Oh, it's not looking good for you, girl. No. Also, I think also people were really polite. She didn't know for sure that this woman was having an affair. And 
you know, this is a way different time and a different society that, you know, responds politely to invitations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yes, around 4 p.m. was when she arrived, and it was around that time that neighbors at Two Priory reported hearing shouting and sounds of violence. Mary Percy claimed that this is because she was killing mice. But <laughs> mice don't shout. <laughs> You were just screaming at the mice you were killing. Just screaming at the mice. Oh, man. So this is when the prosecution decided or, you know, they had their conjecture that she removed the fire poker from the hearth and bashed Phoebe's head in during this altercation. So they clearly started in some verbal altercation and – whether she was in a fit or whether she was just worked up and this was just a fight, obviously Mary took it to the next level. It was the suggestion of the coroner that Phoebe was unconscious after the head blows, but not yet killed, and that Mary then finished her off with the brutal throat slice with the carving knife that they found with blood on it. Oh, God. Neighbors reported around this time hearing an infant cry and then abruptly stop. So it would stand to reason that the child would be alarmed by the attack on her mother and begin to cry. And it seems equally likely that in a panic to shut the baby up, Mary smothered the baby. Yep. Yep. So this is basically the prosecution is walking them through this devastating of event yeah with what they pieced together supported by witnesses and evidence yeah i mean mm-hmm. how is this even a trial i know oh and also they just have they have the emotional impact on people i mean this is all circumstantial they're piecing it together with lots and lots of different things but the emotional impact of what this woman went through that is proven by the coroner and the baby is just such that she was straight up fucked. You're not going to listen to this story and look kindly upon this woman, you know? No, and she had all the physical evidence too, didn't she? All of the physical evidence. So seeing as Mary never confessed, we will never know for sure what exactly transpired. Yeah. But shortly thereafter, it appears she placed Phoebe's and possibly Tiggy's body in the pram to find an appropriate dumping spot. Witnesses testified to seeing Mary pushing the large, heavy pram in the direction where Phoebe's corpse would eventually be found <laughs> in the darkening twilight. Oh my god. What they described was considerable effort, which is what it would take to push a 140-pound body over the cobblestones. Yeah, and the baby, too. And the baby, potentially. Oh, So Mrs. Percy dumped the body first and then the pram two and a half miles away. And so there's an alternate theory, too, that owing to the fact that baby Tiggy didn't have a drop of blood on her, I personally think that Mary actually left the child's body concealed in her home while she disposed of the mother's bloody corpse and then later went back out in the evening under the cover of darkness and got rid of the little baby body, which is a lot easier to carry and conceal. 
Yeah. Just because the baby, the baby's body didn't have any blood on it. And apparently the pram was completely soaked through. But either way, you know, she got rid of both bodies. So neighbors reported that Mary's lamps were on until the wee hours of the morning, which is unusual because, you know, lamp oil was expensive and people didn't usually keep it on all night if they didn't have to. Um, And sounds of cleaning and moving of furniture could be heard through the walls. In response, the defense's timetable claimed that Phoebe had stopped by Mary's to ask to borrow money. So they denied that, like, even Mary had invited her over, which it seems ridiculous because they had the the witness saying that she asked to be delivered that message to Phoebe, you know? Okay. So she said that Phoebe just unexpectedly stopped by. She asked to borrow money and to for help babysitting Tiggy, which Mary declined. She said that afterwards she was on her way out and she went to the fishmonger and a local public house, which is like a bar. But I couldn't find any evidence. It wasn't mentioned in the book. And I couldn't find anything anywhere else that said that there was any witnesses that corroborated her story whatsoever. That said, Crazy. like, and you'd see, they, 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 you'd think the fishmonger would say, yeah, she was absolutely here or, you know, somebody who served her at the public house or something, you know? She claimed the cleaning sounds resulted from her attempting to clean the rug of the mouse blood. Bitch, mice don't bleed that much. Come on. Oh, my God. What did you do? Like, put dynamite in them and they exploded into a million pieces? Like, <laughs> that's not. Then, oh, my God. Did I tell you about the time? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Guys, I'm going to tell you the story Andy doesn't want me to tell you because it's the most disgusting story of all time. <laughs> But uh, last year at some point, my husband Nathaniel was cooking (laughs) at the stove. And we live in a really old house. It was built in 1900. (laughs) And so every winter, there's some mice issues. And are you taking off your headphones so you don't hear the story again? (laughs) You are a coward. I mean, I heard it in real time and got a photo already. Yeah, I was actually – so I'm on the phone with Andy in the other room. (laughs) Yeah, you were you were part of this. I'm on the phone with Andy, and I hear Nathaniel scream. So I have to go, and I had to call Andy back. <laughs> so gross. Wasn't this the same time as the bats too? Yeah, we had a bat infestation too. It was really bad. Um, and he stepped back. And his foot, his bare foot, squished on a baby mouse that had just been born. And he saw a mouse mother just running across the carpet, giving birth while she was running. And he had stepped on the newborn mouse baby and it just went splat. So I can tell you definitively my husband has exploded a mouse underneath his bare foot <laughs> there was there no wasn't blood. any blood it was just like no it was just goo. it was just a mouse, mouse goo, goo. <laughs> just disintegrated it was terrible oh my god oh my god so it's disgusting truly terrible it's disgusting so yeah 
Anyway, so I she's a lying I, bitch, pretty much. She's a lying bitch. As somebody who has witnessed the first foot destruction of a mouse, mouse massacre, a mouse massacre. <laughs> oh, oh my ribs hurt. Oh. <laughs> so. In closing arguments, the prosecution offered up the physical evidence, which matched with the coroner's proposed timeline of events, and of course, the strong motive of wanting her lover's wife and child out of the picture. The defense argued that Mary actually didn't have anything to gain from Phoebe and Tiggy's death, as Frank had never promised to marry her, even in the case of his wife's death. Like, of course he did. He's a scumbag. Yeah. <laughs> Her lawyers also reminded the court that the evidence against Mary was highly circumstantial and it was not prudent to send a woman to the gallows when so many avenues lay unexplored. For instance, could Frank actually be the real murderer? Like we said, he, yeah, he had a key. He could have set Mary up. There, I mean, it could be possible that she didn't actually even know this was happening. Yep. And do they I mean, know that he has more a key? Likely. They do know because Inspector Bannister found it in his Come home. Come on, guys. Come on. Yeah. So it, it seems like this is an obvious one that they should have explored. But someone did see Mary pushing the pram, right? They did. So, I mean, it's the most likely – I think the most likely scenario is that – Either they killed her together and Mary covered it up because nobody would think twice about a woman having a baby carriage. Yeah. Or she killed Phoebe, but at his request. Yeah. Like so many of our stories, like father of the year, he didn't actually do the killing, but it was because he manipulated her. And it's clear based on those letters that he was very adept at manipulating her. Yeah. hundred percent. Yep. I, I do think that they weren't really working in shades of gray here, though. They weren't like if he didn't actually physically murder her, I don't know if they would have charged him with anything, even if they could prove he manipulated her to murder his wife. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it was like in 1890 in England, you know. So the other theory was that maybe Frank was right and Phoebe did have a lover and that lover had killed Phoebe, that one's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andy's doing the old jerk off hand motion right now. <laughs> the old. Get out of here. The old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the jury decided, nah, bitch. After only a 30 minute deliberation, they proclaimed Mary Eleanor Wheeler, aka Percy, guilty of willful murder. Oof. The judge then sentenced her to death in the most Victorian way possible. So I'm going to read to you what he said to her because it is bone chilling. Judge Denman dressed up in his black robes, white wig, and small square of black silk placed ceremonially on top his voluminous white wig said the following. Mary Eleanor Wheeler, have you anything to say why the court should not proceed to pronounce a sentence of death upon you? Only that I am innocent of this charge, she said weakly. 
You have been found guilty after a most patient trial and after a most powerful and able defense. And I must say that I feel it to be absolutely impossible to conceive that the death of Phoebe Hogg would have taken place without your having been an active instrument towards that death. It is a terrible case. I do not wish to add to the pangs which you must feel by saying much to you. I do say, however, that I think it is one of the many instances which have come before me, even at this very session, of the terrible results of persons giving way to purient and indecent lust. You have become a person of so little moral sense that eventually you have been an instrument and a willing instrument of taking away the life of a woman whose only offense was that she was married to a man upon whom you had set your unholy passion. Whoa. He is so intense. Imagine his just his little ringlets in the wig just shaking with anger. <laughs> now, I cannot hold out to you any hope whatever that within a very short time you will not cease to live as an inmate of this our world. You will have a certain time for preparation. God grant that you may use that time for your eternal benefit. You will have the opportunity. You will be kindly dealt with, kindly ministered to, and I trust that you will use the short time upon earth that remains for you in preparing yourself for another world. I now have nothing to do but to pass the sentence of the law upon you. Mary Eleanor Wheeler Percy, it is the sentence of this court that you shall be taken to the place from whence you came and thence to a place of lawful execution, and there you shall be hanged by the neck until you be dead. And afterwards, your body shall be buried in a common grave within the precincts of the prison wherein you were last confined before your execution, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Whoa. It's dark. Whoa. It's dark. And apparently she just was like, I, I didn't do it. But I, I but I didn't I, but I didn't do it. <laughs> that was all she said as they, they like let her away. She just was like, guys, I, I'm just telling you, I really didn't do it. <laughs> oh man. So intense. And everyone was like, amen, the whole court, too, when he said that. Scary oh. stuff, huh? Scary. And Frank's just chilling. Uh, Frank's, like, living his best life in Camden. He just moved out of London. He's like, bye. Oh, my God. I Child bet he had another girl. Yeah, I bet he had a, somebody else on the side that he could just move right in with. What a hog. He's, he's a hog. Mary's execution by hanging was planned for late December of the same year. That is some really swift justice in Victorian England. The murder happened on like the 24th or the 25th of October, and they are killing her by Christmas. That's crazy. Crazy. Her attorneys appealed the courts and the home secretary to commute her sentence to life imprisonment but unfortunately for Mrs. Percy, they were not swayed and the death sentence was upheld. On Saturday, December 20th, her attorneys received the bad news and the very next morning, the letter in its entirety was published on the front page of Lloyd's Weekly newspaper. So this is what the letter said. 
Sir, with reference to the representations and the memorials which you have submitted in behalf of Mary Eleanor Percy or Wheeler, now under sentence of death in Newgate Prison for murder, I am directed by the Secretary of State to say that, after medical inquiry and the most careful consideration of all of the circumstances in the case, he regrets that he is unable to discover any sufficient grounds to justify him in advising Her Majesty to interfere with the due course of law. I am, sir, your obedient servant, Godfrey Lushington. I kind of read that entire paragraph to you guys just so I could say Godfrey Lushington, which is what I want Andy to call me when I've had too many drinks when I can drink again. (laughs) Oh, Godfrey. Oh, you're being a real Godfrey Lushington right now. Lushington. You old Lushington, you. (laughs) Oh my god, amazing. In the time between sentencing and the execution, Charlotte Mary's mother was able to call on her a handful of times at the prison. Both mother and a priest begged Mary to either confess to her crimes or unburden herself and maybe free herself by revealing the true killer. But Mary remained stalwart, denying she had any knowledge of the murders and refusing to implicate Frank Hogg. Shit. Speaking of Frank, Mary was desperate to see him one last time, and she requested multiple times to him to to have him come visit her, and she would reach out through her own mother, who was, like, disgusted about the whole thing, but wanted to keep her daughter happy before she was executed, and she reached out to Clara and Frank's mother. And she even got it cleared with the prison that he could come for an official visit. And he set up a he set up a time. He sent word through his sister that he would come. And then he just ghosted her. She was just sitting at the prison waiting for him for hours. What an asshole. Total, total asshole. So I had two thoughts about this. First, he's a freaking asshole. And he 100% set her up. And this was a lot of his design. And then as soon as he got what he wanted out of it, he would just noped out of her and is keeping a distance from her and being a huge dick. But it's also, there's a slim, 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 tiny chance that didn't actually have anything to do with it. And then of course he wouldn't want to go visit the person that killed his wife and child. Exactly. Yeah. Did he have any sort of like sadness about, her. Only the weird, exaggerated, overly maudlin response. Yeah, okay. And people really thought, I mean, it was very British to be like, hmm, that's a bit much, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, they were like, mm, that seems like it's for show. So that was the only thing. So we don't know. I mean, maybe, again, maybe there's a slim chance that that was a genuine response and he was just truly that was his response to grief we don't know this happened 130 years ago oh my god so also continuing on about frank one of mary's attorneys received an anonymous letter that claimed that a milkman would testify to seeing frank hogg leaving two priory which again we all recall he had a key for Shortly after the time of the murders and the noises that the neighbors reported, hmm. the note was used in further appeal for Mary, but apparently it could not be substantiated. So 
they the whoever this milkman was he never came forward if there ever was a milkman and because they couldn't get his testimony in front of a court they were like no you don't get another appeal sorry we're not going to give you more time to investigate this also it was an anonymous note so i I don't think they placed a lot of credence on that you know it just seemed like a last ditch attempt by somebody to save mary's life yeah Other than denying her involvement to her mother, priest, attorneys, and the newspaper reporters, Mary kept up her appetite in prison and also sold all of her belongings to Madame Tussauds. Mary reportedly consumed the following each day she was imprisoned. Bacon and eggs for breakfast, a chop or steak for dinner, tea and supper, and when she chose a reasonable supply of malt liquor or wine. She was getting litty up in the jail. So nice. Lloyd's reported that Mrs. Percy drank at least a bottle of ale each night before she retired for bed. Oh, my God. <laughs> this seems like some, like, really nice room service for a Victorian prison. I guess if they're, like, you're going to be executed in a couple weeks, like, you might as well. Yeah. <laughs> like, when you exactly. give your dog steak before you go put it down. Exactly. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, it's like instead of a last meal, you get like last several meals. Yeah. (laughs) Madame Tussauds debuted the Hampstead Murderess exhibition only a week after Mary was sentenced to death. It advertised having the perambulator, the pram, Mm -hmm. the furniture, and all relics connected with the case. Tussauds had purchased all of Mrs. Percy's belongings. This account is from Woman at the Devil's Door. So this is just about what the exhibition was like. Tussauds had purchased all of Mrs. Percy's belongings, utensils, the fireplace grate, even the table against which Mrs. Hogg supposedly leaned when the fatal blows were struck, and the tableau of two Priory Street, as well as Mrs. Percy's wax likeness, were faithfully and eerily recreated. The scene included an effigy that stood near a fire screen with her hands folded and her cold blue marble eyes pensively staring into eternity. The tableau included a model of the kitchen where the crime purportedly took place, as well as her piano, pictures, carpets, with the chairs arranged as they were when the police came to arrest her. Tussauds had even purchased some of Phoebe's bloodstained garments. The actual pram in which the corpses had been transported and the toffee bought for baby Tiggy just before she died. Oh my God. That's this horrid. is too much. It's too much even for me. Yeah. Ooh. In one tableau, which may have been designed later, Mrs. Percy's wax figure stared down broodingly at a sleeping Tiggy in her crib. Ooh. Ooh. The money Mrs. Percy made in selling her relics went to support her defense. By one source, some 200 pounds were paid to her attorney. But Frank Hogg, who sold the pram, among other items, could make no such claim that he was doing it to support his defense. Yeah. Which is perhaps why the Illustrated Police News was outraged at finding the pram as part of the exhibit, writing... It would be too much to expect any great delicacy of feeling from the owner of this article. But there are few men in existence, let us hope, who would allow such a relic of a murdered wife and child to pass into the hands of strangers for the purpose of gratifying an unhealthy curiosity. Yeah, it's disgusting. It's gross. You grody, man. 
Yeah. Also, do you want to hear what's even grotier? Maybe. In addition to the pram, Frank sold his beard, which had been cut from his face by the Tussauds barber and reattached to his wax figure. You've got to be kidding me. <laughs> I am not. I am not. They they literally cut off his actual beard and stuck it on his wax figure. It's disgusting. Isn't that the most disgusting thing you've ever heard? That is disgusting. <laughs> also, he's so low. That is so low to participate in this grisly. Yeah, that's what makes me think that he's just an asshole. Yeah. The day the exhibition opened, more than 30 thousand Londoners clogged the streets trying to get in. Oh, How wild is my that? my God. This reminds me of the um, Halloween case with the corpse. Yes, bed. when all of the thousands of people showed up to look at the corpse. Yep. Yep. Apparently the crowds were so crazy that three times over the course of the afternoon, the street traffic had to be diverted to accommodate the crush of people. And Madame Tussauds had to alter the flow through the exhibition to accommodate the enormous volume of onlookers. This is funny to me because people keep saying like true crime is like this new obsession. (laughs) It's like people have been obsessed with this shit since the beginning of time. Yep. Since somebody could pick up a rock and hit somebody else with it. Exactly. <laughs> it's too, It's like human nature. It's not. It is. It's being yeah. fascinated. That's why we always start the show with like this is where true crime meets human interest. Yeah. Because it is a human interest to be interested in what the worst of passions can bring, what the worst of our, our basest and most violent tendencies, how they can come out, you know? Yeah. It's inside all of us. Ooh. <laughs> Andy's looking at me a look that she said it's not inside of her. (laughs) But it would be. I'm telling you, it's inside of you. If somebody tried to kill you or your baby or Dan or Quincy, you would fight until they were dead. Yeah, but that's self-defense. That's different. But still, the murderous (laughs) instinct lives inside of you. It just needs to be unlocked by so-called (laughs) self-defense. With her appeals exhausted, execution for Mary became a certainty. On December 22nd, 1890, the executioner James Barry came to prepare the gallows for the next morning's hanging and met briefly with the doomed and damaged murderess. James later wrote in his diaries that Mrs. Percy was the most beautiful woman he hanged. Her big blue eyes with a languishing look in them, masses of wavy hair and lips like Cupid's bow, were the attractions that made many a man fall in love with her in the days of her youth, he supposed. (laughs) Days of her youth. She's 24. Yeah. (laughs) He went on to write that she had a long and shapely neck, and though there was never anything of an artist or a poet in James Barry, I tell you I was spellbound when I saw her in her condemned cell. At some point, Barry consulted his table of drops and confirmed that at nine stones, which is about 126 pounds, Mrs. Percy would need a rope of six feet. The noose used at the time by British hangman had no knot, they having long ago abandoned the cowboy coil still used by American executioners in favor of a rope with a metal eye built into it through which the running end of a hempen rope was threaded. A rubber washer adjusted against the rope and was placed under the prisoner's neck to hold it steady at the mark. 
The long drop method of execution was designed to break a prisoner's neck quickly and painlessly. As the prisoner's body accelerated, the metal eye fetched up against the chin, forcing the head backward and snapping the neck just so at a certain vertebrae, which would rupture the spinal cord, causing instantaneous unconsciousness and immediate death. Yikes. So yikes. It sounds so brutal. It's crazy to me that that was the humane way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Mary refused her last meal, but took counsel with a Reverend Duffield soon after 10 p.m. the night before her hanging. He pleaded with her to not be launched into eternity with anything on your mind, which you can now explain. She replied calmly, I have nothing to explain. I am not guilty. Though she tried to go to bed around 11.30, her sleep was so fitful that she ended up getting up at 3 a.m. and requesting a cup of tea, which was granted. Twice more, the reverend would urge her to confess around 7 a.m. and 8 a.m. the next day, but she remained mum to the end, only acquiescing enough to recite the Lord's Prayer with the good reverend. Shortly after, Mary was chained and led to the gallows, where the reverend attended to her last prayers and James Barry hung the noose around her neck. He would later write that she was one of the calmest he had ever executed. No crying, no begging. With one press of a lever, Mary Eleanor Wheeler Percy, only 24 years old, disappeared through a trap door, her neck breaking instantly. Oh. The next day on Christmas Eve, 1890, her execution was front page news, along with Mrs. Percy's last dying request, which was an advertisement to be placed in London and Madrid newspapers that read as follows, M-E-C-P, last wish of M-E-W, have not betrayed. So her attorney claimed that Mary had revealed to him that she was still legally married to a man who had abandoned her and that she believed he was perhaps residing in Madrid. This could be the initials M-E-C-P, could be Mary Eleanor Charles Percy because of the mysterious Charles Percy she said she had married, which would be a wild coincidence that she dated Two men whose names combined Charles Percy later on. Exact same spelling. Yeah. Last wish of M.E.W. would be Mary Eleanor Wheeler. Yeah. So this was what the attorney and her mother believed, though her mother had personally never met this so-called fantasy husband. And they believed that wherever this guy was, this was her last attempt to reach out to him. Okay. But others speculated that it was a shrouded message to Frank Hogg because, remember, he never came to see her. Yeah. That she took his murderous secret to the grave, hence the have not betrayed. Almost immediately after her execution, some newspapers reported that it was possible that she was actually Jack the Ripper. And since then, this has been a rumor about this case. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, which you may know from the, being the creator of Sherlock Holmes, 
famously suggested that the Ripper could have easily been a female because a woman pretending to be a midwife could be seen in public in bloody clothes and not arouse suspicion. According to Wikipedia, this theory was expanded upon in 1939 by William Stewart in his book, Jack the Ripper, A New Theory, which specifically named Mary Percy as the suspect. All evidence given is circumstantial, and there's absolutely no physical evidence or eyewitness reports linking Percy to the Ripper crimes. Sarah Beth Hopton strongly refutes the Ripper theory. She wrote... It should go without saying, yet I will say it here definitively, that Mary Percy was not Jill the Ripper. In brief, the way in which she murdered was different. The type of person she murdered was different. Motives for murdering were different. And where she murdered was different. The only commonality between the Hampstead and Whitechapel cases was that there was some overlap in the cadre of reporters and police assigned to work them. Ms. Hopton also does show proof that Mary was not related to another murderer named Thomas Wheeler, who is still widely reported to have been her father and was executed around the time of Mary's real father, James Wheeler's death. So even when I was doing research for this case, I read on several true crime blogs that she was actually a second generation executed murderer. And this was actually just completely not true. Okay. So she just was dispelling the rumor. She's not Jack the Ripper. She's not a second-generation murderer. However, she does offer credence to the fact that she believes Frank could most certainly have been involved, which we think so as well. She said some of the things that made her think this are Frank's cold indifference to Mrs. Percy once in court, his repeated lies, his coached responses at the Old Bailey courtroom, his dramatic wailing when asked about his wife, the manner in which the body was butchered and conveyed, and his immediate disappearance caused me to pause and ask myself whether Frank Hogg wasn't a sly fox all along, is what she wrote. Or like a horrible, saddened husband. Like, that's not what he sounds like. No. So... I mean, I think Frank had something to do with it, but it's also entirely possible that Mary Eleanor Percy was the sole architect of the destruction of innocent Phoebe and Tiggy, just as she alone was punished. The mystery will endure just as it has for the past 130 years. I thought you didn't like unsolved mysteries. Well, I mean, when they you know, convict somebody and kill them. It seems like pretty, pretty solved. (laughs) I think the mystery part is whether somebody else got away with it, which I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So that is this, this week's Victorian era killing, which is also very timely. I mean, it happened between the end of October and Christmas Eve. Yep. Yep. I'm very impressed that you found this. (laughs) we can thank audible premium for that (laughs) uh thank you guys so much again thank you for the well wishes and the reviews this week um thanks again to amanda and to leah red we adore you guys and again if you've made it this far and you liked this old timey throwback murder please 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 Hit that five stars and maybe leave us a line because it makes our day every single time. For sure. For sure, for sure. In conclusion, 
Wear a helmet, y'all. Make your kids wear a helmet. Protect yourself and your children from becoming serial killers. <gasps> yeah, helmets are cool. Victoria in London, though, honestly sounds like a drag. Yeah, people were judgy. Judgy. Yeah. <laughs> and as always, remember, we're all just one of our husband's bad relationships away from getting murdered. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Thank you.